Hello. Thank you for joining me on this episode. Do you guys want to just quickly introduce yourselves? Sure, Erica. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Clifford. I am a incoming fourth year University of Toronto student majoring in criminology and ethics society and law. All right. Thanks, Cliff. Uh, my name is Andrew Park, same school, and my majors are ethics society and law and philosophy. Okay. So today I thought we could kind of talk about law, um, specifically law as a tool for both certain kinds of order, but also forms of disorder. So I'm going to start us off with a quote, and then I'd be really interested to kind of hear just your immediate response to it. So the quote is from Robert Williams, um, and this is from the 1990s, and it goes, Law, regarded by the West as its most respected and cherished instrument of civilization, was also the West's most vital and effective instrument of empire during its genocidal conquest and colonization of the non-Western peoples of the New World. Mm, I'll go first. Um, Sorry, Cliff, I saw you had your hand up. uh, No, it's okay. Go ahead. I I think one thing that this quote touches on really nicely is especially in kind of today's culture, which is Western culture for where we are, there's like this tendency to replace any need for morality with the law. Like people would, like there's no there's no requisite to be moral ever, technically speaking. And that's like a lot of people's arguments. Like, oh, you know, it'd be nice if I did this, but technically I don't have to because it's not illegal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I think it shows how much law has kind of become the primary uh standard for i don't know the primary bounds within we live our lives rather than what it used to be which is morality but obviously like morality is not efficient and you know capitalism colonialism they need efficiency you need to have clearly defined rules that you can follow morality is complicated it's kind of like there's a lot of gray area but um yeah cliff you guys want to say i definitely feel like you know especially since something like morality is protean uh like it, it definitely changes over time whereas law it's is something entrenched right like these are completely polar opposite characteristics, yet they try and achieve the same thing in objective, but that's theoretically and practically impossible. So I feel like there is definitely this disconnect between what morality should be and what the law, you know, misconstrues it to be. And that definitely creates a lot of problems in our society, actually. Mm-hmm. And do you think there's something inherent there about the fact that law is something stable, it's concrete, it's defined? Versus morality, I think, is up for more personal interpretation and it's more fluid and it's flexible. Do you think there's that's like part of the disconnect or, um, yeah, is that part of the disconnect? How can you kind of reconcile that? Right. And uh, I, I definitely do. Like I said, law is something, you know, it's set in stone. And if we were to go by the letter of the law, it's, you know, either something is right or something is wrong. But in reality, nothing is really black and white like that, right? Morality, you know, it takes into account, you know, lived experience. It takes into account factors that the letter of the law cannot. And I definitely feel like, you know, in a way, law constrains, but, you know, with things like judicial interpretation, where there are actually human beings interpreting the law rather than us just reading it in, um, it can be turned into something better towards what real morality should be. Also, like, this is kind of a moral philosophy hot take, and I've gotten into a lot of debates with Clifford about this, like, in classes, but I actually think there is such thing as 
a more objective morality that exists. Um, I feel like for me, at least from what I kind of think about the subjective aspects of morality, they don't really come from like the nature of morality itself. It's more just like people have different circumstances that they're raised in, that they grew up with, that they are conditioned in. But if you kind of start to remove those, and I don't mean like, you know, raise everybody in a, a blank white room to feel the same things all the time. I think if you, for me, the process of removing things from our past is just to become aware of them. So then mm-hmm. you kind of, you realize where they're coming from. So I think if people realize, oh, like maybe I think this particular thing about morality because I was raised like as an Asian person or because I was an immigrant, like these right. are certain things that once you realize them, you think, oh, then in that case, it's possible that it's not necessary that this is always the moral action or this is always the immoral action. And when we kind of remove all these layers, there's like, there's hella layers. There's, you know, the men and women, <laughs> everything in between and everything outside. There's like, um, I don't know, child and adult. There are all these different distinctions that kind of could affect what you determine morality to be. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think like a lot of what you guys are kind of talking about right now is ideally we want the law to reflect these more objective ideals of morality and then also just values of society in general. Mm. Um, But I think the main problem with law is that that's the ideal, but it doesn't always accomplish that. And then this quote like really directly points to that, right? It directly calls out the law for being an instrument of civilization, right? Mm -hmm. So in this word instrument, it's talking about who is using the law and for what purpose. So in this sense, the purpose here is quite quite violent, right? It's used for genocidal conquest and colonization to basically suppress um, groups of people for power. So I'm wondering, like, where do you think that problem kind of comes from, right? How did we get from this, honestly, like, quite grand ideal of we want these words and these laws to reflect what we the ideal society we want how do we get that get from that to an instrument of violence Hmm. well uh what i think is that you know law is a reflection of internal dispositions and internal dispositions uh you know consequentially they result in you know culture and like what Mm -hmm. a culture uh you know uh wants to embody themselves as and I mean, we can argue that the law misconstrued it or not, but I think ultimately the law is used as a tool to reflect what a culture believes and internal dispositions. So, you know, when the law is used to oppress, I can't help but think that, you know, inherently, you know, human beings, you know, we're greedy, to be Mm. honest, like we're greedy. If we want something, if we get it, you know, we get a momentarily, uh, you know, we get a momentarily dose of happiness. But then eventually we want more of it. And I think um, if, you know, morality doesn't keep law in check, something like the law can be used to continuously fuel that. And in inter- ultimately that becomes, you know, a tool to promote evil purposes. Mm-hmm. Andy? Yeah. I'm sorry. I was just thinking for a second. That's a good point. I think... Um for me to tie that to something concrete, that's definitely where capitalism comes into play. Because Mm -hmm. like Clifford said, capitalism instills in people this internal disposition to make money, right? And to maximize profits, which 
originally made sense because capitalism, you know, depends on productivity and people to become maximally productive. But the problem right. is that when you globalize and, you know, through colonialization, you globalize the system, you can have pockets where the maximization of profits don't actually uplift the entire demographic involved. But, um, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and another factor that's also huge in this development of the corruption of law, which we're talking about right now is, um, in tandem with everyone's internalized disposition for material gains, there's the like extraordinary wealth of individuals that go or individuals or corporations or whatever that go beyond the wealth of a political party. And what that allows for is very, very, very effective political lobbying. Right. And now Mm -hmm. the law, which is a system that's, you know, no matter what happens at some level, you have like a clear, either a clear uh, statute or you have like some kind of judicial interpretation to turn to, to give yourself a, a very efficient efficient and official ruling. And if you have political lobbyists, you have these wealthy people who have the ability to kind of mold that instrument to their needs. Not only can they, you know, through bribery or whatever, do it in an instant, but they can also entrench a system, like Clifford said, where they're the ones that will continually be benefiting. Their people are the ones that will continually be benefiting. And I think when that goes unchecked for a long period of time, you get to a point where eventually people are going to start realizing, like, we're living in two different systems, essentially. Yeah. Right. So law does seem then to be affected by politics of power, mm-hmm. right? Um, so in kind of a capitalist world, you have these monopolies who hold all this power and then these corporations then through lobbying are now connected to government Mm -hmm. so the power has kind of shifted from the people who i think ideally the law was created to serve right the law Mm -hmm. was supposed to reflect the people's will and like what would benefit the people but now that because the collective people have kind of lost that power to things like corporations or you know particular government figures that power has shifted mm-hmm. is that kind of like what you're talking about there with capitalism yeah that, that i think that's a pretty good summary um i think also to incorporate colonialism into that uh one thing that kind of makes colonialization a lot more again efficient because why are they colonizing it's mostly let's be real they wanted spices, they wanted some kind of cold or whatever, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. There's an inevitable like displacement of other human beings when you colonialize places that are already you know inhabited. And mm-hmm. a lot of that takes the form of genocide. And I think to do that, one thing that's huge is dehumanization. Because I think individual people, if someone told me, for example, that I could get $2 million, but I would have to like personally with my hands kill you and kill Clifford I kind of like you know take a minute uh you know do I really need two milli and then I do a cost benefits analysis whatever and you know who knows what I decide but you know if someone says oh kill these two random people that you don't know in fact these kind of people they're less than human you know they're worse than us we don't really like it would be a service to them for you to take over then you kind of don't think about it as like murder you're just kind of like oh I'll just you know liberate these people and I'll take some money like, mm-hmm. while I'm doing it, there's nothing wrong with that. And that kind of, because I think if you're close enough with somebody, any death, even if you kind of like were pissed off at that person, 
it's gonna become a tragedy to you. It's a it's a tragic happening. But when mm-hmm. yeah. you humanize the other party, it becomes a lot less of that. It's just kind of like, oh, it had to be done. It is what it is. That won't happen yeah. if it's someone you know, right? Right. Yeah. And actually, I just want to jump in there and like I think the idea of the genocidal aspect of this quote, right? When you are amassing this great collection of bodies, right? You're wiping out these people. Almost in that great number, you have this anonymity, right? Where it suddenly becomes dehumanized just because of how many people there. It's one thing to kill this one person who has a name, who has a life, and you like recognize that. But when you're talking about it in these great numbers, um, when you're talking about it as this kind of project, right? We need to clear these lands so we can settle them. You're no longer talking in the humanistic terms of an individual life. So I think that too ties into the dehumanization of an entire group of people where you can justify, you know, right. genocide in order to get land and resource. Right. And dehumanization itself as a concept, I think it's it's crucial, you know, for something like cost-benefit analysis. Because let's face it, if we're going to address every single one of these people as human beings, let's say, you know, we have a human connection to them. We actually fully recognize that they're human beings. A cost-benefit analysis wouldn't be as persuasive. Like, yeah, you can have you can have gold, you can have money, but I mean, at the end of the day, you're killing human beings, right? People you mm-hmm. talk to, people you interact with, but if you were to dehumanize them and remove the deontological aspect of that and solely view the situation in a consequentialist light, it becomes much easier to say, you know, sure, let's call these people, Let, let's call these masses, right? Because we mm-hmm. just want to get what we want. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just going to step in and define a couple of Clifford's terms for our potentially less philosophical audience <laughs> but um consequentialist means um something you determine you determine the worth of something based on the consequences it produces and deontological means you determine the value of something based on what it actually is so like mm-hmm. um i don't know what's an example maybe deontologically there's nothing wrong with me picking my nose for example <laughs> but if i pick my <laughs> nose in front of little kids then maybe there's a consequence of like getting all of them to pick their nose and now it's just like we're just a very not hygienic group of people <laughs> right that's, a, that's but, not a very good example but you know you know what i mean hopefully here, maybe i can tie it to like my example before like specifically if, if we were to talk about like you know calling people to gain riches or something like that um a consequentialist viewpoint of that would be you know okay we kill let's say two people and we get 10 billion dollars consequentially you weigh the cost and benefits of that and you make a decision without weighing anything else and deontologically on the other hand would be you asking questions like you know killing a human being is that inherently right or wrong regardless of what you get out of it right is killing a human being right if it's right then do it if it's if if it's wrong then obviously don't do it right and obviously it's wrong so deontologically you shouldn't do that and do you think the law in any um way contributes to dehumanization Oh, for sure. One hundred percent. Off the top of my head, there's anti-immigrant laws. Uh, the United States Constitution, or was it the Constitution? I don't know. They used to have the three-fifths law, where like freed slaves were literally counted as three-fifths of regular human beings. Um, right. There was, of mm-hmm. course, you know, slavery. <laughs> that's a, that's a big one, and that also, of course, is a lot of these dehumanization laws, as we've kind of been iterating, are very much tied to capitalism you know slavery especially 
It wasn't that, you know, the the impetus for slavery, the driving force wasn't, oh, you know, we hate black people or we hate these people, we hate those. It was mostly just we can exploit this to make a shit ton of money. And that's actually like the mm-hmm. base of the United States. That's why the United States is not generally a poor country. Like they really they were really like one of the best countries at exploiting slave labor from their inception more or less. Like the first people mm-hmm. that came to the United States were owners. If I'm I don't remember the exact I think they're the Jamestown settlers in Virginia. They were like a, a they're either employees or owners of like a stock company called the Virginia Company of London and they basically were some of the first people to get rich really quickly using slaves in the United States because, you know, they were the first people there. And mm-hmm. to pay debts to um, to pay debts after, to pay debts that were incurred during the American Revolution because, you know, we don't talk about that, but a lot of historical events, they kind of end with a compromise that involves, you know, some sort of payment. So the United States had to pay Brit- Britain, like, millions. And what they did was they paid millions based off, like, the... Native American land that they seized and the exploitation of slave labor on that land, which is just insanely profitable. Like, think about if you owned a huge company and you didn't have to pay the workers anything. That's, like, probably one of the biggest operating costs there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, we talk about systemic racism. We talk about racial capitalism. But there is something inherently racial about capitalism, right? Because capitalism... Um, like any system of exploitation functions off of difference, right? So it requires you to construct differences between people. So some are devalued so you can get rid of some of those operational costs. Um, So it's hard to talk about violence, law, slavery, racism as these separate processes because they're all kind of co-constitutive right you have capitalism was kind of built on this idea of race it requires racialization to function um so law in a way kind of facilitates all of these processes i will entertain a couple of uh counterpoints just for myself because i know like when i've spoken to people that's a very much controversial thing to say like how is capitalism inherently racial right because you know Mm -hmm, it's just it's just like a formula it's just a theory but um, there's a couple points. The first yeah. point is that, well, there's capitalism, the the idea in a vacuum. But the problem is when you talk about capitalism, the idea in a vacuum, it does not at all correlate to what exists in the real world because mm-hmm. of the alignment of uh, capitalism, colonialization, and racism that we've already spoken about. But I also think that, okay, to break it down really simply, the very, very, very fundamental block of capitalism is exploitation and not necessarily in a detrimental sense to like totally screw people over like if i'm an owner of capital i own some kind of means of production there are people working for me that are producing i have to pay them less than the value of what they created otherwise i wouldn't be making any profit it wouldn't make any sense right Mm -hmm. so there is that inherent sense of exploitation and then now that we have that principle where racism comes in is it's so much easier to kind of subjugate a whole bunch of people into that exploited class if we not only like force them to accept the job but we create a culture where it makes sense for them to accept that job like if everyone looks down on black people as like just laborers everyone looks down at asian people as just like tech whatever like we kind of have social structures as well as economic structures putting us in the position to be exploited and Mm -hmm. i think oh i'm losing my train of thought but 
that's basically what I what people are saying when they say capitalism is racial. Like it's not just that, you know, in a theory you can't write the definition of capitalism without anything of race. No, it's that you need a certain group of people to be willing to some extent, like, you know, whether or not that's truly free will, well, that's not really important right now, but to be willing to take that job where they will be exploited. And it's a lot easier to create a social pressure when you discriminate against a whole race of people. And again, race is a social construct because it's not ethnicity. It's based on, you know, physical factors, right? So that, again, that's yeah. like a way easier way to, you know, talk about a whole class at the same time. But yeah, Clifford? Right. The, the thing with capitalism is that, you know, another potential counter would be, you know, someone asking, well, if capitalism is so exploitative, then why is it built on a foundation of libertarianism, you know, just ultimate freedom, you know, freedom mm-hmm. to do whatever you want. But to be honest, if you really think about it, theoretically, these two notions aren't really mutually exclusive, right? They can exist with each other. Because um, capitalism, in my opinion, is libertarianism misconstrued, right? It's a libertarianism blown out of its proportions to be unrepresentative of what it's of what it's ideally supposed to be, which in my opinion is communal respect, uh, communal, uh, how do you say it? benefits for the community right you know you can have mm-hmm. freedom but to an uh to a certain point because yeah freedom yeah because freedom doesn't come above individual rights individual happiness individual benefits for all equally right yeah and, and capitalism you know draws the line way far ahead right to the mm-hmm. point where you know yeah you can have ultimate freedom you can theoretically get whatever you want but does that apply for 90 percent of the, the population no it doesn't yeah, and mm-hmm. I think um, John Stuart Mill, who wrote the book On Liberty, which is kind of like one of the first or one of the foundational libertarian um, books. It's like the libertarian manifesto, basically, where he says people should be should have the liberty to do whatever they want as long as they don't harm others. And the right. problem is now harm is such a complicated concept. If I buy a T-shirt that's made with child slave labor in like Indonesia, am I am I creating harm or Mm -hmm. am I just is harm just incurring as a coincidence and if I'm aware of it now am I creating harm there's a lot of different factors here but I think part of the issue combined with that is again the thing we talked about with law and morality people just give themselves reasons not to care even if it feels like maybe you should right Mm -hmm. right yeah and I think something that you're both kind of hinting at here that there is a problem of scale right a lot of these concepts and ideas, they work on an individual scale or even a community mm-hmm. scale, right? Where you know everyone, you know, you, you know everyone on the block, you're friends with them, you, ha- you know, you have barbecues together. But there is a disconnect created when this gets scaled up to a globalized world, mm-hmm. right? That's where you start having things break down where you don't feel like you're doing something wrong when you buy that t-shirt. Even though when you reflect on it, you might realize there's a lot of things going on there. But because you don't see that actual child, right? You're not Mm -hmm. forcing that child to create that t-shirt. You feel removed from any sense of blameworthiness. When you have this issue of scale, when you're working in a globalized world, um, do you think there's any way that we can kind of rectify those problems of disconnect or how do you think people have contested that or begin to address that problem i think um it's important to remember that when we talk about these big systems and we talk about these overarching structures of society capitalism we talk about corporate 
or colonialism, you know, the corporate hierarchy, the, I don't know, to extend, it's kind of like a, uh, it's not really a democracy anymore. I'm not really sure what to call it, but um, it's important to remember that we are all parts of that, right? And that's not to mm-hmm. say that one person can have a presidential influence over everything, but it is influence in general. And I think on a very regular individual scale, one thing we can all do is learn about these strings that are pulling our minds basically pulling our hearts like why do i consider this to be immoral why do i consider this to be immoral and i think on a deeper level um fighting all systems of dehumanization because by recognizing that that's just not true like you to dehumanize something you're acknowledging basically that it was human to begin with so when you look at systems of dehumanization you can flip those and if dehumanization goes away not that everything else will fall into place but it's going to play a big role even even if it's just in two people right Mm -hmm. Okay, like you, you touched on democracy there, right? Yeah. Um, and then I think like the law and like everything we've kind of talked about, there's the ideal version and then there's the version reality. Yeah. So you have well, what I believe the ideal version of democracy, right? It's only exists when people gather together and make collective decisions or take collective action, right? It's kind of an energy yeah. that's generated amongst people but that doesn't work when you have a global population um sorry that doesn't work when you have a lot of people with a population being global but yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> when you have that many people so then democracy becomes reified as a system right you have voting rights, you have party systems. And we can already see kind of the problems here, right? Even if you just look at elections with the electoral college, right? Mm -hmm. My vote in California is not the same as a vote in, say, Wisconsin, or Florida, like any sort of swing state, right? You now Mm -hmm. have this differential power there. So you have the electoral college. And then you have... um, the fact that like there's so much power concentrated in the Senate and in the House, right? And then when you have a two-party system, it sways left or right. So then when you have a Republican president, a Republican Senate, that's a lot of lawmaking power concentrated in a party that's becoming more and more polarized and almost unified, just the same way as the left is, right? So already, the minute you start implementing democracy as a system, there's issues. So and then the law kind of works through that, right? The law is constrained by the system it works within. So what do you think are some ways that people can work within this system of democracy? Because as much as we like the ideal of just collective action, it's not feasible, hence why we had the system in the first place. So what are some ways of working with the system to achieve more of those collective ideals that we were striving for in the beginning? I personally think proliferation of knowledge is the first and foremost, most important thing, because, you know, the law can work as a vehicle for change. But if you're going to have judges and people who are still going to be aligned with, you know, the original paradigm, it's not going to do anything. It's still going to be used as a vehicle of oppression. Mm-hmm. And I think through education, through knowledge, um, we can best achieve what I like to call a, you know, change in cultural values, a change for, you know, more communal based, uh, you know, 
a society where everyone benefits, not at, uh, where you have individual liberty, but not at the expense of, you know, anyone else's suffrage. Mm-hmm. Just love each other, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I also think, you know, in, in sense of playing the political game, um, I like to use the example of like chess. So mm-hmm. if politics are the rules of chess, then essentially we are just pawns because we don't really have that much power. We can't do that much. We can only make an influence in a certain type of way. And if anything that's more powerful than us is in our way, we literally can't do anything. (laughs) But um, there is the opportunity within the rules to make it to the end of the chessboard, in which case a pawn suddenly becomes so much more powerful and a pawn can Mm -hmm. take over the game, essentially. And I think what that entails in real-life politics, uh, concrete examples, I'm not just telling people to go play chess, um, is that you can there are political avenues you can take they're just not going to be that pretty i think local politics getting involved in local politics is huge just because you can make a very concrete example like yeah maybe you didn't change a, a law that's going to affect the entire country but you changed like even just five lives in your community that's five lives that you've touched and that's right. five lives more than you had before i think and that's also an avenue to create like what clifford's saying a different kind of culture where you can kind of um, feed off that feed off that momentum and keep going. I think yep. a great example of that is uh, AOC. I love AOC because she feels like to me the perfect example of well, first she was kind of a more local political figure in like the Bronx, but with mm-hmm. the use of social media and the internet, she kind of blew up, and now she got elected out of the Bronx in New York into Congress, and it's kind of like a pawn that made it that's making it to the end of the chessboard. People are trying to catch up to her before she does, but she's really gaining political power really, really quickly. And um, it's not perfect. Like she hasn't, I mean, not that she's been a failure, but she's obviously not gonna be able to enact change as fast as she wants to just because of, you know, bureaucratic sluggishness. But um, she's, she's doing a lot more than she could have before. And it all begins with like just getting involved in your local community, doing all that stuff. And then you might launch forward and you might not, but either way, you can make some kind of a difference. Right. Exactly. I I think you touched on a really good point, Andy, that, you know, I think us as a society, because of how big civilization has become, you know, like the United States is huge. Like there's so many people living in it and, you know, it may, make one individual feel like, you know, they're one amongst millions and therefore their one vote doesn't count, but it really does. And I, I feel like it's arbitrary and it, to be honest, logically flawed for an individual to say, since I am so insignificant, I cannot make a difference. Like that, mm-hmm. like, like not only is that attitude like gonna get you nowhere, first of all, second of all, that attitude literally doesn't do anything. I totally agree, right? Um, I've had this conversation probably more times than I should have just with random people on the internet. But it's, it says, yeah, well, I don't like Biden. I don't like Trump. I'm not going to vote. Or I'm going to vote third party. I'm going to use my vote to protest. You know, I'm all for protest, you know, taking a stance, exercise your individual right. But in an election of such gravity, right, where it's right. not just your life that's at stake here, right? Right. There, you're talking about you do have a responsibility to the collective to vote because you do not exist in a vacuum. (laughs) You exist within the context of society. So what you do affects other people. So when you refuse to play the game, um, 
that's fine, but then you can't go and complain about it, mm-hmm. right? If you're going to say, I'm not going to vote, I'm not going to work, I'm not going to fight for change for what I believe is right, I'm someone else can do it, or I'm insignificant, then you can't go on and complain and say, well, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like what he just did today, I don't like what she, she did yesterday, you know? So if you want to be a functioning part of society, you do have to take on that duty to participate and actually be a functioning part of the society. Right. Yeah, because you benefit so much from being in that society. And I think people kind of, because they don't see yeah. it, they don't acknowledge it as much. But yeah, like at a certain point, if you're just being an asshole to the community, the community should be able to exile you, which is what they did in the old days. But it's a lot more complicated <laughs> now. Um, I think kind of going back to the voting thing there is a need for i think angela davis said this strategy versus ideology mm-hmm. like right if you just stick to your like for example let's take a conversation between two people with opposing ideologies let's say me and dumbass i don't know <laughs> it's hard anyways if we have internet two, troll one internet troll yeah internet troll one versus andy if i have a certain ideology that's like at odds fundamentally at odds with this internet troll then I have to think to myself, okay, what's my objective? Is my objective to be right? In which case, I'm just going to scream the truth. I'm just going to scream what I think is right. But that's not going to do anything in the conversation. My strategy right. is flawed. My strategy should be towards, how can I get this person to see what I'm seeing? Like, are they right. misguided? Are they whatever? And that's going to require you to take a lot more of a compassionate stance because you're yeah. not insecure about where I'm standing. You're trying to get this other person to move. You have to recognize that and you have to, you know, adapt your strategy accordingly. But yeah, Cliff. Right. I I feel like a big part of why, you know, there is still such a huge divide in ideology and, you know, the United the United States, for example, and why even up to the twenty first century, that divide hasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, it hasn't been mitigated. On the other hand, it's actually been exacerbated. Like, you know, you see protests and anti-protests and like violence i feel like the reason is because we tend to antagonize the other side for a view that we don't be- uh, for a view that they don't believe in and vice versa i'm not i'm just talking about like like us i'm talking about like people in general right if yeah. you have a view especially for something as sensitive as politics if you have a view and you know you support biden and you're talking to someone who supports trump and you know there's sort of this tendency to when you guys disagree um not uh you antagonize the other people. And a result of that is they don't listen to what you're trying to say. They don't They don't have a dialogue with you. They have an argument with you. And when they have an argument with you, they shut off everything. They actually entrench their own values even more because they want to, because they want to have the chance to prove you wrong and prove them right. Well, that in itself mm-hmm. doesn't change anything. It doesn't change the other person's values. It just entrenches their ideologies and creates antagonism and creates, you know, it creates a deeper divide. So I definitely mm-hmm. feel like in order for us to start, you know, moving in the right direction, we have to get rid of this notion of, you know, antagonizing the other people and make them, you know, you know, understand their position and then teach them without antagonizing them. Yeah. And I think this brings us then to a very relevant topic right now, political polarization, right? And there's kind of two points I want to make about this. And I'm curious to hear both of your responses to them. So the first point is on what I think both of you have been talking about, where as a person, say, on the right, my job is to be the opposite of the person on the left. My job isn't to uphold a certain ideology, to enact certain values, you know, to construct a certain agenda. It is to be the antagonist to you, 
right? So a Democrat gets elected. They spend four years in office. Um, a Republican gets elected. I'm going to spend my four years derailing everything you just did. Right. And it goes back and forth, back and forth, right? And it becomes this war rather than what are we actually trying to do here? You know, what actually benefits people, what benefits you and what benefits the greater society? Mm-hmm. So you have that whole going on. And then you also have what you guys mentioned earlier about change. You know, this is, I think, one of the biggest issues with radical politics, right? Even the word itself, radical, when you hear that, you get these like negative connotations about, oh, they just want to uproot the entire world. They're going to ruin everything. It's going to be chaos. Um, And that's built into our rhetoric, right? That's um, part of the issue here about like how we speak about these things. But so when you have... um, grand ideas of change there is something important in compromise and taking incremental steps right what you're talking about here about strategy versus ideology you can have this ideology in mind of like what you ultimately want to accomplish in the end but that requires a lot of zigzagging back and forth right incremental strategic steps where you may have to compromise and give up some certain parts but in order to take the next step so somebody else can then build on top of that and take a step further and further. Um, And I think that's partly where a lot of the breakdown of progressive politics happens because people start um, purporting these grand ideals without giving people more concrete, actionable steps that they can, where they can visualize how can we get to a point where we've eliminated fossil fuels. You know, what are the steps we take in between there? And then um, how can we kind of talk about that in politics without it being inhibiting, where you tell people we're going to get rid of this entire industry? That's scary, right? right? So what are some more strategic ways we can approach achieving those big goals? So those are kind of like the two ideas, I think, are very that are very relevant right now to polarization. So Andy? Yeah, I think that... Um... One thing that ties all of this together is the idea of propaganda and the way to mm-hmm. address propaganda is again through education and a proper conversation. But I'll just um, talk on that a little further. So propaganda, I feel like it exists in so many different forms. And the funny thing to me is the right wing party is generally the one that's most afraid of propaganda and at the same time is the one that uses it the most. Like there's propaganda in on an individual scale, like calling somebody you know, a Bernie bro or like a libtard or like a Trump supporter. <laughs> These are all things mm-hmm. where you just kind of, you classify them right away, right? And that's a, in a sense a form of propagandizing because you're not looking at any of the actual substance that they're providing. You're just giving them a name and rejecting them on that basis. And the same thing happens mm-hmm. on a larger scale with like, oh, that's socialism, that's communism. That's what a lot of people say when they say anti-capitalist, you know? That's, mm-hmm. that's such a socialist thing to say. And there's still very much like... um remnants of the red scare in western society and the red scare for those of you who don't know is like the i think it was during the cold war the very anti-communist rhetoric that was essentially used to fuel um last like dying imperialistic conquests and you know Mm -hmm. oil and all that stuff anyway yeah and a lot of dehumanization (laughs) was involved in the cold war and all that too yeah Uh, it's almost like it's all connected but yeah like propaganda is also something that happens in like a conversation between two individuals like if we have separate ideologies for example someone's going to call me you know oh you're just like a a snowflake liberal well here's the thing i don't care or like if i've recommended this before i was like oh i think capitalism has to some extent 
become dismantled. And I've had a friend who's older than me tell me, oh, but that's communism. And I'm like, okay, but let's think about what that means. Like, I'm not going to reject something because of its name. And if you think about yeah. it, there's already a lot of socialist aspects in today's society that people just don't call socialism. And that's the That problem. people benefit from. Yeah, right? like seatbelt laws. Um, I don't know, like anything that the government gives you ever, any tax break, any subsidization, that's all very much anti-capitalist that's all not very libertarian of them to do but anyways mm-hmm. it's like yeah like b- the problem with propaganda is because it creates the emotional aspect to it um like what we've been saying it's no longer about pursuing a common goal between the two of you it's about me versus you it's about me playing defense now i'm not right. i don't care about what's right or wrong i don't care about what's better or worse i'm just going to defend myself because you're the enemy i've already decided you're the enemy right but if we have like a two-party system that it's the, originally the two-party system was supposed to be we're both pursuing the same thing through different methods. But now it's kind of like yeah. they're um, they're diametrically at odds with each other. Everything Democrats do, Republicans are like, fuck that. Everything they do, Democrats are like, fuck that. And right. that's not productive at all. What happens is we're not fighting anymore for the people's benefit. We're fighting for which party is going to have power. And that's why when people are saying... Um, like oh the two-party system is corrupt that's what they're essentially talking about but at the Mm. same time back to dehumanization if you're going to say oh well under trump's america like two hundred thousand people will die under biden's america it'll still be over a hundred thousand it's a lot of people we're doomed either way the problem with that argument is you're totally trivializing like a bunch of people dying because you have to acknowledge there's a difference and imagine telling that to the people that have died like their families oh you know clifford died but you know it doesn't matter like if people would have died anyway yo that's not going to make him feel better (laughs) at all right and that's dehumanization at play like right now yeah yeah and i think you kind of hinted about this when you were talking about the different labels that we put on ideas, right? So there is something very powerful in the words we choose to use, mm-hmm. right? Um, these words, again, they don't exist in a vacuum. They have connotations. They have history, right? Communism has a very long history attached to it where it sparks fear and anger in people, especially in the U.S. Right. Um, so do you – and then – but that's also there's also a very interesting connection there where you have the law. Like the law fundamentally broken down is just a sequence of words, right? Mm-hmm. It's words put to action, it's words with precedent, it's words interpreted. So how do you think um, the power of words comes into play here? Well, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, first and foremost, always, always, always education. And that doesn't just mean schooling. It just means like Mm -hmm. self-awareness. Going back to like one of the very, very first things I said, like knowing where certain triggers in yourself come from, like emotional triggers, especially, oh, why does that word make me angry? That might not necessarily make it so that you're never angry, for example, but it'll rationalize it and make it so that you don't have, you know that even though I'm afraid, that's nothing to be feared. Like the thing that I'm afraid of. And um sorry Clifford do you want to say something you can go ahead yeah, yeah. um I wanted to say uh this kind of ties into propaganda and the, the whole antagonism thing we were talking about earlier the thing with people is when they're promoting a politician or when they're you know bringing one down they they use loaded words um it, it's all words that doesn't signal an objective viewpoint of the situation it's all words that are already are laced with you know notions of I'm right, you're wrong, get over it, we're going to win, you know, F you, stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. And that this sort of ties into what I was saying before, where, yes, you know, 
if you know people can rally people who believe in your cause can rally behind that because but but what they're rallying behind the field that they're rallying behind with is anger right it's not understanding it's not cooperation and yeah you can win elections like this you can lose elections like this but are we really making any progress right as a, as a society as a community because we're just, if, yeah. if half if, ta- if half the population are going to be hating each other you know for the rest of history then you know you might as well just say to hell with the po- political system like if we're going to be hating each other after all like like what's the point in it yeah like we're going to have new governments you know maybe in four years you're going to get what you want for an, for a period of time but we're still going to be hating each other no progress is going to be made yeah we've kind of lost that self-reflection where we've forgotten to ask ourselves what is government actually here for right, right? what are these elections here for and we've forgotten the long-term goals that we build these systems on yeah, yeah. andy yeah and it's like you know like Clifford said, you can totally antagonize a group of people. You're still going to be living next to them, right? Mm-hmm. What's your what's your overall objective? And I think um, the problem, one of the main problems with propaganda and that kind of emotional aspect to it all is because dialogue is extremely important. And actually going back to John Stuart Mill, he has a whole chapter on the freedom of speech. And he very much emphasizes that we should never ban freedom of speech because I don't think he's taking in the emotional propaganda aspect. The reason he says we should never ban any speech or expression, unless it like directly calls for harm, is because even if you know something is wrong outright, if someone says something that's opposing your views, what it does is it makes you question your views in a way that you can either A, discover your views are incorrect or partially incorrect, in which case you're kind of glad that you found that out because your mm-hmm. goal isn't to be right. Your goal is to, or your goal isn't to, defend your views your goals are to have the best views and exactly. that's learning wrong, right that's yeah. that's what learning is yeah yeah and if you're not wrong then what you now know is you have a more substantive justification for your beliefs and i reading that for me has been huge because a lot of the stuff that i believe in now i'm always like reassessing constantly evaluating trying to attack my own views and exactly. that way when someone else talks shit to me i have all this um, backup or I have a lot of justification already because I've already thought of this through I've already thought this through but you question a lot of people that just watch the news without thinking about it they're just accept things at face value and you exactly. kind of like you poke at it a little bit and you realize that they're just they're just defending themselves based on like pride now they're, they don't right. have an actual belief behind this you know? mm-hmm. and there's a lot of danger in that in media representations right um when you are given a version of the truth, when you're given a representation of something that happens, you're listening to someone's interpretation of it. And then when you then interpret that, you have this twice removed interpretation of what actually happened. And that's kind of where these more polarized discourses start to arise, where the media swings a little bit right. And then the person watching that media swings a bit more, a little bit right. Mm-hmm. So then your actual end result of what you think happened is a completely like radicalized version of what yeah. actually happened, right? Or it's just completely wrong sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I think we see this a lot now with the protests in the mm-hmm. US, right? Where you have some people saying, well, um, they're destroying proc- property, these riots, it's violent, we're um, destroying these cities and then you have the counter narrative to that where we're fighting for change right we're fighting for lives here like that who cares about your broken window when people are dying yeah right so you have these competing narratives then i think i think for us like 
in school, we're kind of taught to critically think, right? Mm -hmm. We're taught to take in other people's perspectives, value that against our own, and come to a better, more informed conclusion. But unfortunately, education, or especially post-secondary education, it's not available to everyone. And a lot of that is tied to elitism and stuff like that. So how does an everyday citizen who may not have access to that kind of practice and thinking, right, um, that we do like that we like luckily and like very fortunately get in classrooms. Um, how can the media do better? But then also how can an individual citizen do better as like an interpreter of information? Yeah, I, I definitely don't think the media is very conducive to an objective take on what is happening in the world. Like you see right-wing no media, like for the Black Lives Matter movement, all I've seen from like right-wing media is most of the time pictures of, you know, violence, like protesters clashing with the police, right? And then people who are right-wing, they naturally get predisposed to being right-wing media. And then they see, oh, this movement is violent. That is counterproductive. What are you guys doing? But then mm -hmm. on the other hand, we have left-wing media showing, uh, you know, people, prote uh, uh, people peacefully protesting. And it's funny because news is supposed to be objective, but then you have these two news media outlets portraying completely different things, completely conflicting things that have connotations mm. that are completely polarizing, and that just contributes to the divide. And what you're saying about how we can uh, make citizens, you know, you know, understand what really is happening, I feel like this ties into education. You know, I'm, I'm throwing this word out there because I think it's a solution, but it's very hard to implement, okay? Education. Yeah. I think education is key. Uh, and that starts with things like governmental subsidy to education, opening the barriers, you know, removing this like uh, notion of elitism, making it more accessible to people who, to be fair, need it the most, right? These are people who have a vote, who deserves to know what's going on objectively. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think um, uh, kind of to go off what Cliff said, yes, education is huge. Um, a little tangent, I always thought it was funny how like people say liberal arts majors or like humanities majors, they'll teach you like how to think. And I was always like, does that mean everyone else doesn't know how to think? Because that's, kind of <laughs> like, that's, not, that's not good. But um, anyways, I think um, in terms of like right now, because obviously education reform is huge, but it's something that's going to take a long time to yeah. um, implement and reap the rewards of. I think, like I said, just becoming aware of these biases is huge. Like knowing the New York Post is heavily, heavily right wing. Having like independent fact checking websites that you can go to, like even the Atlantic, I think is slightly left leaning. But um. Yeah, even CNN is also left-leaning. And I think mm -hmm. um, not just that, but also being receptive to criticism, being open-minded, because yeah. I think what was hard for me, especially at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement, just because I was so um, emotional about it, was anybody that was kind of talking shit, I was kind of like, yo, you know, screw you. Like, I don't, I don't like you anymore. But then, you know, there's a valid point being made about, you know, the point of a protest and the property damage that incurs, not that property damage is ever justifiable over the loss of life, but mm -hmm. there's got to be an organization to it, right? Which is a huge part of the civil rights movement. Like MLK Jr. wasn't just winging it. He was, there was a very clear boycotting, very clear strikes, very clear. Even the protests were like, I think, I don't remember which one it was. I think it was uh, one of his big marches. It wasn't just a random march on a random street. They were marching to register to vote, right? It was a very right. deliberate focus. And I think, if it's just uncontained chaos and like it's actually small businesses in the minority communities that are being destroyed, that is counterproductive for sure. But mm -hmm. I also like I looked into it because I had to acknowledge my I had to acknowledge oh I was like a bit 
too quick from the jump to get mad at these people. They actually made some valid points. I looked more into it, and now I can say to those people who say property damage, I can say that's not indicative of the Black Lives Matter actual movement, and there are right. people mm-hmm. within the movement taking care of that. So it's yeah. like, it's kind of, it shows that you're just trying to, you know, um, talk down the movement if you focus on that. You're kind of misdirecting the argument if you're turning yeah. it. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you're bringing us an energy. <laughs> sorry, yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, you're right. You're misdirecting the argument. You're purposefully choosing not to look into it further, Where in which case you would find that it is being dealt with, right? Same thing with black-on-black crime. Mm-hmm. It's not like, first of all, it's not a real thing. Crime is just crime. But it's also right. like in black communities, and I've looked into this to make sure that I'm not just uh, misleading people. It's not like they're encouraging it. It's not like they're allowing it to happen even. It's something that they're also actively working against, right? Mm-hmm. and same with like white on white crime or like asian on asian crime we, we're not just gonna be like ah it doesn't count because we're attacking each other no we're gonna treat it like it's regular crime and be like hey we gotta stop this hey we gotta stop this that doesn't mean it's mm-hmm. disappearing but you can't you can't not acknowledge that it's being treated mm-hmm. um yeah clever yeah i'm gonna switch the tracks a little bit but definitely remove to blm and like a lot of what's going on right here going on right now there's this huge rhetoric around law and order, right? You see Trump tweeting it. I think maybe a month or two ago, he was tweeting it like every single day, law and order, law and order, law and order. Um, And it's become kind of this like lightning rod for right, right wing ideology, which is like very obviously like a um, pro police. Yeah. Like a manipulated use of the term law and order, Right. right? Because when you're talking about order, there are multiple social orders, right? Right. You have capitalism as a social order, Mm. right? Colonialism is a social order. These are ways that we've ordered society. So law and order. So when law is serving a particular order, it matters a lot which order it's serving, right? Order, not an objective term. Um, And then you kind of have these protests, which I consider almost disruptions of order, right? And not in a bad way, because when order is something that harms people, when you're disrupting order, you're challenging that, right? So there's something powerful in disorder, which I I think is a lot of um, protests, counter movements, grassroots organizations, stuff like that. So kind of what are your ideas surrounding this idea of law and order, the rhetoric around it, but then also its ability to challenge um, these exploitive systems? I think the concept of order, uh, just hearing it in itself, you know, it brings about a sense of, you know, it brings about a sense of, uh, how do I say this, calm? And it also brings about a sense of, you know, things are being done for the better, right? If someone like Trump is saying law and order, you know what, Erica, you bring about a good point. What order? Capitalism, Mm -hmm. colonialism. Uh, But when you simply just say order, you know, the common person who's listening, they'll be, uh, they associate that with something that's de facto good, right? Mm-hmm. When in reality, that isn't the case. So, uh, so, sorry, what was the second part of your question? Oh, I'm just like kind of wondering, um, what about then how like disorder can challenge that? Or um, do you think order can be good? What are some more positive social orders that we can be working towards? Right. Uh I mean, uh, just going back to what I was saying about, you know, respect for community, individualism, but not too far-fetched, that kind of order, I think, is more in line with, you know, traditional notions of democracy, Uh, democracy not misconstrued. And, you know, that's also considered an order, but it's radically different from what people like Trump are advocating for implicitly. 
and you know just promoting things like that it's going to take time and you know solutions have been proposed but i think that's sort of where the direction that we should be going towards Mm -hmm. and there's almost something ironic in the particular example with trump right where he's calling for law and order but in order to achieve that order he's using very oppressive forms of violence right where you have these like unmarked vehicles coming into cities you have militarized police coming and like suppressing movement so there is something very not totalitarian yeah not it's not inherently oppressive because order doesn't have to be this way but there is something very violent about ordering something right you're managing and controlling things to fit a predetermined structure right when you're ordering people there is something we recognize in that that is dangerous if unchecked yeah like um disorder i think you said this is supposed to be a part of order like the whole point of having a liberal society is so that people can voice their opinions and we can you know, get informed from them, not just ignore them or turn them down or, you know, restrict that in any way. Like the form of disorder, like a protest or even a violent protest, it's not at the end of the day an act of violence. It's an act of expression. That's just what it's supposed to be, right? They don't want Mm -hmm. to just fight people. They want to express that there's something that needs to be changed. And like, if you oppress that or if you try and dismantle that, then you own, the only way of expressing yourself is through the system, but if the system is bent toward the will of certain powerful people, which is just the case which we talked about with like how capitalism corrupts democracy, then you're not going to have actual change in the system that's for the benefit of everybody. If it's, if it's not for the benefit of the people in control of the laws, then it's not going to happen. And it's just so funny to me because imagine like walking around during the American Revolution, screaming law and order. Hey, stop, stop mm-hmm. fighting law and order. Let's just talk to the British people. <laughs> Let's just sign a <laughs> war and maybe they'll stop taxing us. Like, that's mm-hmm. not how things work. And especially, I think, after a period such as this period right now, where so much change has happened so quickly, and I think that's what the digital age has done. We've learned so much so fast. The, the bureaucratic systems in place are not going to be able to keep pace oh my mm-hmm. god accidental rhyme but you know <laughs> that's how you know it's true right like but that's the end of the day that's what it is for me like when people say it's not american to do this or people say it's not libertarian to do this or it's whatever i ask them what do you think libertarianism is what do you think americanism is like patriotism that's that's just propaganda again at that point you're just yeah believing mm-hmm. something without yeah. really really having a reason to believe it And the reason why you have these protests now is because this order is broken, right? It no longer works for a lot of people in society. People protest because the traditional avenues where people have achieved change, such as more, you know, like where your representatives write laws or they um, make decisions that benefit you, that avenue has broken down. There's been a disconnect between the people who are supposed to represent us and the people. So then what other avenue do you have than the ones that you make yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Such as through protests and grassroots, grassroots organizing um, and creating that sense of disorder. And I think that one thing that really pisses me off is when people say like, oh, it is what it is. And I think we talked about this one, like with people that don't vote, 
they just mm-hmm. see it as like a futile attempt. Well, it's not futile until you decide it is, like mm-hmm. technically speaking. And here's the problem with it is what it is. I'm going to get like hella logical right now, hella philosophical. Um, <laughs> people like to use logic in like regular people. We like to use logic to justify the future event. Like we'll say, oh, I know this, this is this that's already happened. So this is going to happen in the future. A common example is like I've tried, you know, three bottles of this Diet Coke and the next bottle of Diet Coke is going to taste the same as them, which isn't like a wild thing to say. But the problem is, technically speaking, you can't have an ironclad justification because you don't actually know what's going to happen in the future. Like, you know, mm-hmm. people like to say the sun always rises. One day it's not. <laughs> and we actually right. really know that. And I think when people say it is what it is or they say like, oh, it's futile to vote. It is now because you've given up. But if you don't like maybe you might have to be fighting this fight for your whole life or even past your life it's a like, generational fight right yeah it's, yeah yeah exactly so it's like when people even just that's why i like to emphasize having discussions with just people close to you i think earlier you asked how can we make this change to people that don't have the same access to education well the people that don't have access to education hopefully there's someone near them that does and hopefully there's someone near them that, that knows how to carry a proper conversation that can guide them maybe. If you can guide one person, then maybe that person guides someone else, guides someone else. And like um, I've mentioned this before, not on here but earlier, that my favorite movie is Inception because this dude just like does one really small thing. Like I don't know, he turns off a light and then suddenly this whole person's life philosophy can change from that. You know, there's a rippling effect. There's a, I don't know, like, don't if even if you think you're powerless don't do yourself the disservice of taking away your own power right right and just to touch on your point about how you know we want to change the people around us i think it's good to first start off with you know um opening themselves up to change right because if they're going to be you know ironclad in what they believe in and just push everyone else away that's not going to really do anything no matter how many people talk to them and I, I think the best way to do that is to, you know, start treating others, you know, as a community. I, I feel like, you know, in countries where, you know, in, especially in the digital age where there are millions of people in a country, people are all like superficially on social media and stuff like that. We're losing the connection we have with human beings, right? You know, mm-hmm. like, let's say I'm living in New York and there's some guy in California and, you know, his house burned down. Um would I feel the same for him as I would, let's say, 500 years ago? I'm living in a village, and then, like, the guy on the other side of the village, which is, like, let's say, 100 meters long, his house caught on fire and actually personally knew him? I don't think so. I, I feel like, you know, this in itself, you know, how big uh, society has gone is in itself a form of dehumanization. And that mm-hmm. sort of and that sort of is conducive to what I like to call, you know, people not treating others, you know, as human beings. And therefore as consequ- uh, consequentially uh they're not opening themselves up to like a proper dialogue with a human being they just believe in their own things and that you know contributes to the antagonism and everything just you know it's all connected like andy said before mm-hmm. yeah and like i'm anticipating a lot of not just anticipating from experience i've had a lot of people really not like my take on it is what it is like future events not being predictable and mm-hmm. this does tie into like because this is everything, right? If you just ex- accept, well, current society, it is what it is. I'm just not going to care. It is what it is. Dehumanization, whatever, whatever, globalization, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, to a certain extent, when you calculate the pr- like 
future events through logic, you can kind of make educated guesses, right? It's not just random. Like the future isn't just completely random. But from just a quick little education spiel, philosophically speaking, it's not random, but it's never a hundred percent. Like the way that it's calc the way that people have basically found the best avenue for justifying it's called induction, where you make a future claim based on past um experience. The the closest they've gotten to being able to justify that is using probability. And basically every single time an instance happens, the probability of it happening again increases a little bit. So the sun always rising maybe is not like a hundred percent for tomorrow, but it's like a 99.99% because it's risen every night that I've experienced until tomorrow. Right. Mm -hmm. But what that also means, what that entails is that you have a certain autonomy over the ways of the world. You do something one time, the chance of it happening again is a little bit higher because you've done it once. And I think from personal experience, like doing things like working out or like waking up early, if you do them one time, the second time, it's still hard, but it's a little bit easier because you've broken that barrier, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe the, the solution to the it is what it is yeah. population. And And the problem with just looking at the future from this statistical point of view is that these numbers don't account for people. Right. Like what people can do, like like you said, these actions, these incremental actions, um, these collectivized actions when many people do them at the same time. Um, And then it's it's also kind of very illogical to think about it in the sense, well, the future is just going to be what it is. There's nothing I can do about it. Like what is the future? But what an accumulation of what you do in the present. Mm, Right. The future very much is in our control. Yes, there's structural restraints we need to work around and work within. But the future is going to be an accumulation of all of these actions added together. Right? And we see this, like our society, like the global society has gone through multiple changes, usually for the better, I would say, like we're moving towards great, um, greater and greater justice, I guess. Like what is that quote about the life always bends towards justice or something yeah. along those lines, right? We do as a society tend to evolve towards change because we, again, don't live in a vacuum, so we need to adapt to changing values, changing circumstances, changing environments. Mm-hmm. Um, so the future is what you make of it. And to, to just condemn yourself to a future, um, you're basically choosing the future that you don't want, right? right. Yeah. Yeah, you kind, of, you kind of castrate yourself. You take away your own um, you know, autonomy in that situation. And I think on the flip side of that, the other side of the coin. Um, if we're talking about dehumanization, I do think we are dehumanized from a certain extent from the past and the future, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. one of the most shocking uh, revelations from all the Instagram activism that's happened recently is this idea that the civil rights movement was less than a hundred years ago. And I never really processed that because it wasn't mm-hmm. never really educated to me, but right. that's how I always thought of it as something separate from where I am, right? Like that's something that's happened mm-hmm. and you know it's over and the consequences have shown themselves. But now I realize it's very much a thing that has an impact on me today. Like if you think about family for people mm-hmm. that still live with their families, like that's our grandparents' age, right? And you can't say that right. whatever happened in their time has no bearing on the present. And at this, on the same part of that, what we do right now is going to have a bearing on the future. And I think one of the most kind of shocking present versions of this other than like systemic racism in the United States is the the concentration camps in China that are going on right now right because 
I think they just passed the death toll of the Holocaust. But the problem is this combination of dehumanization of like distance and the dehumanization of you know past, present, future. Like oh, it's been happening for a while. Like it's nothing to do with me or whatever. Like we're gonna look back when we're older. And people might ask us, oh, did you know this was going on? Yeah, I saw something on Instagram, but, you know, I just thought it is what it is. That's how dangerous it is. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to say to the future generations when they ask you, what did you do? Yeah. Right. When that happened, what did you do? Most of y'all are going to lie. (laughs) (laughs) For being honest. (laughs) Yeah. And I think like a great way maybe for like listeners to kind of think about this idea of like history and basically what been taught to me and what's been really helpful for me to understand it is that history rather than thinking about it as like a timeline of distinct linear events is more of a structure right so it's more of a layered kind of building you can think about it that way so when something happens it creates one layer that layer then informs the next layer and the next and the next And then, so everything that's happened in the past is still happening in its present iterations, Mm, right? It might've taken on a different form, but you know, like colonialism isn't just, when we talk about colonialism, it's not a historical event. It's something that is still happening just in the fact that we're living on unceded land, right? Right. Mm. We're living on certain land. Colonialism is a continuous process. Um, And same thing with wars, right? Wars don't just end when we've like, declared so right war continues in its aftermath in its effects right in basically yeah like dehumanization is a great way of um uh, is a great example for this right in the dehumanization that happened in war that continues to have effects in how we view certain people we've differentiated as other to ourselves right so war is so continuously happening it's just not happening in you know like the trenches the way that we imagine And even things like slavery, you know, you may think that, you know, it was a few hundred years ago, it may not have an effect on us now, but it does. Because what if I ask you, like, why are there a disproportionate amount of, you know, black people incarcerated in prisons? Why are there a disproportionate amount of black people living in the slums, right? All of these are the result of, you know, slavery and you know its repercussions in the history in the history Mm -hmm. of the united states right so we can't just ignore things like slavery and say oh that was in the past we don't have to do anything about it now because it's repercussions are still with us today whether we like it or not and it's up to us to use that and to you know make reparations because of what happened in history like i had a friend recently come at me and say that systemic racism is a conspiracy theory (laughs) it was a bit of a uh a headache to be honest but um i think one of the ways i would put it to a less conspiracy hungry audience is it's like a fish in water right if you're a fish i think david foster wallace was the first one to tell this story from at least from what i've heard but you know you have a bunch of fish in the water these young fish and then they pass an old fish and the old fish is like hey like hey boys like how's the water today and they're like oh i don't know haha and they swim away and then the young fish are kind of like looking at each other like, okay, what the fuck is water? You know, <laughs> they're just always surrounded in it. That's like the, the, it's just ne- something that never leaves their sight. So how are they supposed to know what it is? And I think we have to understand that that's a thing. Like that is possible for me to not see something that exists just because I've been in it every day. And right. you kind of use that idea to question things. And that's how you can maybe 
open your mind a little bit, be more receptive to, oh, it doesn't seem like systemic racism is real because I've never seen it before, but why is it that I've never seen it? And all these people are testimonially mm-hmm. saying that it does exist. You know? Right. Yeah, so I guess it kind of circles back to this idea of structures, right? You have structures like racism, capitalism, colonialism. And I guess like to kind of end, you've talked about education, but do you think there's anything concrete you can point to of ways of challenging these structures or affecting change within them? Just like personally, it doesn't have to be like on a grand scale. Well, in terms of an educational perspective, I said this before, you know, subsidies and uh, removing barriers. But I also feel like this sort of barrier to academic, uh, to academia, not in terms of finance, but in terms of you know, um, simply knowledge, because, uh, like, for example, let's be honest here, like, it's probably going to take a lot for, you know, a common person to pick up an article and read it cover to cover while understanding everything that's going on and feeling, quote, unquote, woke after, right? And we have difficulty doing that after, like, years of education. Exactly. Like, we're all in fourth year university. And I don't think a single one of us can say I can pick up any article and read it cover to cover. I know exactly what the author was trying to say. You know what I mean? And hey man, speak for yourself, but you know, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and I think this notion of, you know, barriers to education from a non-financial perspective must also be addressed in order for there to actually be change on an, on an educational level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like on a personal level, um, one thing that I just thought of that I don't know, it's not for everybody because it's a lot of work, but taking some of these more grand ideas and making them more digestible for other people, that's a huge mm-hmm. thing. I yeah. think just having this discussion with someone that maybe is not privy to this kind of discourse on a regular basis is also a really helpful thing. Like, even if it's difficult, um, the people that we can affect change within the most are those that are close to us right not just in proximity but in terms of just you know the relationships that we have so having a discussion with their family having a discussion with close friends i think that's all really important because who are they going to believe if not you right right Mm -hmm. yeah and i think there is something very powerful in word of mouth in direct communication you know just having this podcast having this conversation with different people and then in um, when people listen to it, you are creating change, but in incremental ways. But there's that quote about like, what is an ocean, but just a collection of drops, right? Mm. So when you have these one-on-one interactions, you change one person's mind, that person can then go change the minds of many other people. It's kind of like coronavirus, you know, yeah. <laughs> you infect one person, they go on and affect like an exponential amount more. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> there is hope in that. Um, and yeah, and I think perhaps one of the most important lessons we, uh, I'm speaking for like all three of us, I guess, but one of the most important lessons I hope like students and I know for sure of myself that I've learned is that there's so much more to learn and to understand and to always have that open mindset, like you said, Andy, towards different people's ideas. So I can, so I can improve my own ideas and then so I can go on and pass on an improved idea to someone else who can then make it even greater. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that goes back to like what we were saying right in the beginning, right? It is a collective effort. It's about community. It's about recognizing your, your role and the greater order, I guess, of things. Right. Mm-hmm. And in a strange kind of counterintuitive way, I just want to add another thing that people can do 
is look inwards a lot of the time like try mm-hmm. and self-therapize if that's possible watch like a healthy youtube video because i don't know if this is an actual psychological like a proven thing but it is something that resonates with me and i think like the more i talk to people about it it resonates with them as well the idea of empathy is something that very much kind of reflects how you feel about yourself like mm-hmm. when you treat someone a certain way it's not necessarily at least completely because of how you feel about them it's also informed at least to some extent how you feel about yourself and i think especially in this age of social media and instagram and all this stuff people going viral you only see other people's highlights and you see yourself your own bloopers i think that's what someone said and it's like people kind of don't value themselves in a very high regard and what that does is if you're not if your self-esteem is low even subconsciously and you don't have like a true self-love and that doesn't mean you know narcissism i think narcissism is actually and i told this to clifford like narcissism is actually kind of the opposite of self-love because it's you failing to acknowledge your very very real weaknesses and flaws and i think real self-love is to acknowledge those and to accept them that doesn't mean get complacent that just means accept them for what they are which is a very human thing to have and once you reach that point it's so much easier to treat other people with that same respect and kindness because you see yourself in them better even if they fuck up you're like oh i've done that before i can understand why someone would get to that point but that doesn't mean you're a bad person. And I think that's like a very, very small but important step that everybody can take that will just allow you to be more empathetic. And I think communicating these ideas and leading with kindness, like not to be those kind of people that say, oh, don't be violent, be kind. That's something different. This is just for your regular daily life. Like that's going to be something that you can do to just make the world a better place by transforming yourself. And then you can work then on other people but if you're not at that point yet all it takes is for one person to wrong you and you're back to being angry and it it may not be as hard as you know some listeners may think because in my opinion you know andy talked about this before too some uh things like um you know morality caring for others it's not really far so far fresh from what we're naturally prone to do what we're naturally disposed to do right you know, human beings, we started out as Andy said, you know, as a communal, you know, as, as a communal entity, we helped each other, we need help from each other. And consequentially, uh, when others feel pain, we naturally feel pain as well. In fact, I think we still we still do this. But I feel like this notion of individuality has become so, you know, ingrained into our lives and our culture that we're sort of losing sight of that. So, you know, I feel like trying, uh, trying to get that back, getting your communal respect for others back, you know, can allow you to access your inner morality back once again. Mm -hmm. And in this idea of reflection, we've talked so much about education and learning, but a huge part of really learning is unlearning, right? Yeah. We've learned so many wrong conceptions or misconceptions. Um, A huge part of education or even not even just education in an institutional kind of setting, but just in what you read every day, what information are you taking in? You have to break that down and you have to really unlearn these processes that unfortunately a lot of these structures have taught you, ways they've taught you to think. And it's about almost checking yourself, right? And I think, Andy, what you said about that differentiation between self-love and narcissism is so true where narcissism means you've basically rejected the part of yourselves that um, you don't like or that you're insecure about or that you're just like yeah. lying to yourself about right so you're not loving yourself you're loving an idea or an illusion that right. you have of yourself and 
in really trying to understand yourself so then you can understand other people and then understand the world better is to come to terms with what have I been lying lying to myself to, you know, what thoughts do I skip over? What things make me uncomfortable? And really forcing yourself to look them in the eye and address them, which is is a lot harder said than done. Yeah. I mean, which is a lot harder, which is a lot harder to do. Than to, say. to say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like if people say this is really uh, one of my favorite depictions of anxiety. Like I have anxiety, so I love this. When people say anxiety is just you making conspiracy theories about yourself, and it's <laughs> like if that's that, then like narcissism is you just propagandizing yourself. Like just <laughs> I am the great lord, like whatever, whatever. Like, and you know, again, I keep stressing this because this is exactly what you said. A lot of the counteraction has to come from just awareness and recognition, unlearning, on this like untangling where all these ideas come from it's kind of like if your brain is a media then you want to fact check everything and fact checking Mm -hmm. is like you're just being aware and discovering what's what and part of fact checking is of course knowing the biases of parts of your brain if i oh i have a tendency to be hard on myself when i'm like studying then you have to know that's there maybe a b isn't so bad (sighs) or like i have a tendency to be um over like my pride gets hurt really easily when people contest me on an instagram comment section then I have to know that, okay, maybe they're not evil. Maybe they're not wrong. Maybe I'm just being sensitive. And that's not a, like a blame thing. Like, oh man, I suck. It's more just like a recognition thing so you can be better. If you're mm-hmm. going to do the opposite and never recognize it, then you're never going to get better. And you're just going to have to lean more into the propaganda, your self-propaganda. Yeah. yeah, there is a difference between condemning yourself versus being critical. Yeah, like blame and responsibility. You don't have to blame yourself for everything in your life, but you do have to take responsibility for everything in your life. Like you can do something about it. That's what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Are there any kind of final thoughts you guys want to finish on? I think this has been like a very holistic discussion. We kind of ranged through a bunch of topics. It's been great. But yeah, any kind of like final thoughts? Just love each other, man. Unironically. (laughs) You're right. Right. (laughs) feel for each other yeah yeah okay great thank you so much for having this conversation i think i think hopefully it's an example of a lot of what we've been talking about right Mm -hmm. um questioning your own responses by checking them with other people and having discussions that hopefully lead to greater understanding Yeah, yeah this has been great Thanks for having us. Maybe next time we could have like a topic where we disagree more and <laughs> people can see that's that. That's true. We can have an actual debate. <laughs> not, not preaching to the choir anymore, but yeah, that's, this has been great. For I sure. Love this. Yeah, for right. sure. That'd be super interesting. Okay, great. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Eric. Thank you.